vendors are calling us saying, hey, you did this work for Ballot Ready. You made their clients' dreams come true. We want that too. And these are larger vendors. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Irene Tollinger, the CEO of Blue Link, which is an enterprise that she is focused on tackling a key infrastructure problem in the progressive political technology space, the integration of data across multiple political software applications, giving campaigns and other organizations the ability to automatically flow data among their tools. Blue Link worked for 45 clients in the 2020 cycle and are currently raising money for expansion. Irene brings a deep background in product management at NASA, Collective Health, and other technical companies to her work. We had a good conversation about her path to this position, what she's learned along the way, and what she's aiming to do with Blue Link. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Irene Tollinger of Blue Link. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Irene. Hello. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. My name is Irene Tollinger. My background is in design and human-computer interaction. After grad school, I went to work for NASA, which was an amazing experience. I'm really proud of two particular things that I did in the 13 years that I was there. So first, I got to establish the human-computer interaction capability for the agency, moving from kind of the traditional way of writing requirements for software at your desk to observing users and understanding their data and process deeply. You know, at some point, mission management asked, why are your products always shipped on time? Why are the missions accepting them so easily? And the answer was because the user-centered process is highly effective. I was responsible for building and integrating high availability software for Mars rovers, for space station, for NASA's new vehicle that's still in development. And the work really ranged from things like anomaly resolution to planning and scheduling uh, Mars rover activities. After sort of the NASA phase of my career, I went to work for a health tech startup reimagining health benefits. I think there are a lot of analogs between healthcare and political tech actually for example, some of the data challenges, right? And some of the work that is really required to get to data accuracy. After that point, that's when I really, I felt that it was important to work on political tech. Where did you grow up? I grew up in LA. Your parents came from where? 
We all came when I was uh, a toddler from the former Soviet Union. What's now Ukraine? Why did you leave? Unlike a lot of people who come to the U.S. who come for economic opportunity, my parents really came from for freedom, freedom from oppression. And so they gave up kind of interesting and engaging jobs for a lot of uncertainty and took a lot of risk. It's pretty well documented what happened at that time. If you applied to leave and uh, became a refusenik, for example, like once you applied to leave, you couldn't work. Um, and you were sort of in a limbo waiting for approval to leave. There was very little information behind the Iron Curtain at that time about what it was really like to live in the West. But I think they they came to the U.S., were super excited to be here. And the message that I grew up with is very much like, we're Americans and you're American, and we are so incredibly happy to be part of this. It's the story that immigrants from so many countries tell, right? That's one of the wonderful things about this country is this conglomeration of people from everywhere who thought they were going somewhere better. Yeah. yeah. And so when I looked at some of the early, kind of even before the Trump administration was in power and what's reported in the American media is like, this is a lie, whether it's about inauguration crowd size, right? To me, that looks like propaganda, right? That looks like a leader saying, you will believe my words over visual evidence, right? And that's the story of, you know, how so many of these countries are run. You must have been a pretty good student to be a Vassar and Carnegie Mellon college and graduate school person, right? Yeah, I, I love school. Tell me about Vassar for you. It was a great experience. It was a little before I fully realized that I would work in the technical world. I was an anthropology student, but it gave me a lot of the underlying tools to really understand the people and processes in the organizations where I would eventually work. It was a really good training and just an overall like engaging intellectual experience. Did you work in between that and graduate school? I did. I worked in market research. I uh, worked for a company that describes itself as retail anthropologists, studying traffic patterns and eye gaze and details to understand what that experience is like. I see why you connected your undergraduate major with that, huh? Yeah, there were a lot of blue chip companies that hired that company called EnviroCell. It's very interesting. And it was actually early internet days. So we got a bunch of clients asking, we don't know how to sell things online. Can you take a look at this? Even though you guys do physical environments, I convinced my boss that that was really meaningful and interesting work. And uh, that's where I started to think about human computer interaction as a whole field. You went to get an MS in that at Carnegie Mellon, which has got to be one of the better places to study that. What did you come out with? The master's is, it's a pre-professional degree. It's very focused on really how to apply the user-centered process to software development. Certainly there were interesting theoretical things, but it was also just really early in the field of human-computer interaction. 
what it gave us was really the ability to start in whatever organization, whether it was TiVo or NASA, and take stock of what it was that users were trying to accomplish, to unpack that, and to try to form and shape the functionality of the software around what the work actually was. So at that time, in a lot of organizations, design really was about the visuals. It was really like the the layer, the kind of usability peanut butter you could sort of spread on at the end. You know, people joked about how designers were kind of the purple widget placer. It really gave me like the core building blocks that I would then build my career around. Can you trace your career from there to NASA? Yeah. So I worked on a, uh, for my master's on a capstone project that was uh, for NASA directly. And the work was so interesting and engaging that I wanted nothing more than to take a job there afterwards. So it was really a pretty straight line. I got to work on both kind of a theoretical kind of piece of software as well as um, some applied work for the Mars Rover's mission for 2004. When people say NASA, there's still a mystique about working there. There's something about a part of the government that sends people off the planet that is kind of romantic and interesting and high tech and exciting. What was it like for you? I mean, it felt very romantic and exciting, but also practical. And I thought it it was an amazing place to work. I had great mentorship. I was able to hire great people. And uh, it really felt like a meritocracy. So I think overall, the combination of personal satisfaction and impact, it it was all there. As you were there, you got increasing responsibility. What was the final role and what was it like? Uh, So I was a branch chief for the HCI group. What does that mean? (laughs) It's a very NASA term. It's like a department head for a particular function. Yeah. So I managed a team of around 35 folks. So I grew from the design sort of role into a broader management role of technology across the board. The functions that we covered were engineering, design, QA, and also deploying and managing the software so that it was highly available to our missions. What did you learn about management by doing that? I think one of the most important lessons about management is that you are responsible for the folks, right? For their careers, for their growth, right? That it's not, management isn't about authority, it's about responsibility. And you left and you went to this collective health thing that you mentioned earlier. Why and what was that like? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who spend their whole careers at NASA and that's amazing. And I'm a generalist living in Silicon Valley and a lot of my peers are at all sorts of Valley companies and I wanted to kind of have some of the experiences in the commercial space to sort of see what what it's like to work without some of the constraints of working for the government. I've always been really mission-driven, so health tech seemed like a natural fit for me. At Collective, we were working on a pretty substantial project in terms of 
being able to better run health benefits for our users. I started by designing the processes for running a health plan from scratch, from first principles, which was pretty amazing. And then building the technology around that understanding to be able to do it more accurately and more efficiently. I would say that sort of an interest in data accuracy is a thread that really runs through all of the roles that I've had in my career. Four years at Collective Health and and kind of running product for them, right? That's right. Yeah, I ran uh, like six product teams. What do you think makes a good product manager? That's such a good question. So I think that good product management, well, product management in general is, is hard because it's not an academic discipline like design. It's harder to go study product management in the same way. But what I really think it's about is being able to use the kind of tools and disciplines around you to make sure you really understand the problem. And it's all about being able to scope. If you're able to scope something well, you're able to make progress. If something is underscoped, it doesn't meet the need. If it's overscoped, you can't deliver it. So it's really about being able to align on the right kind of size and shape of the problem in the time frame that you have. Having kind of informally managed a software product as a head of a one-man firm at the beginning uh, that I started and being the coder as well as the person who talked to the users, I had this very tight communication loop within myself, right? Which I thought was really, really helpful to go out and understand your users yourself at the same time you're coding and the same time you're designing the user interface. It's now become such a highly specialized field with so much built up around it in terms of expertise, like like what you had studied and what you learned along the way. If you were advising someone who was going into the area of product management, what do you think they ought to study? What kind of experiences do you think make sense? Absolutely. So I think that right now, product management's having a bit of a moment. It's sort of the like shiny tech career. What product management does tactically varies tremendously from they are kind of the backlog jockey and they're sort of implementing, you know, directly some other person's strategic vision to they're like the mini CEO for their own product. So really what they actually do on a day-to-day basis is dramatically different from place to place. But I would ask, what is your product adjacent discipline knowledge? What do you bring to the table? Do you bring an engineering background? Do you bring a design background? Do you bring a a background, uh, let's say, in your domain, in your discipline? For example, do you come from a healthcare background? So I would advise people to have an area of depth rather than to sort of just look for that title and really bring something meaningful to to that product management job. That makes sense. And I think it's become a much more attractive role recently, especially when it's less project management and more really thinking about what are you building and how can it be good? Absolutely. And I think it's the same story in Silicon Valley, that it is that appealing tech job that people are looking to get. So you had alluded to why you would leave what you were doing and move into the political space. A lot of that seems Trump and 
worry about authoritarianism related. Is that right? Yeah. My feeling was that I just couldn't sit out this cycle. Technology is a lever and in elections where the margin is really close, it can be a help. And, and I just felt a sense of responsibility that uh, technologists like me should be doing this work and, and should be helping. And in a way that is thoughtful in a way that is not sort of, you know, uh, folks coming and saying, this is how you should do X, but bringing that design thinking and saying, hey, like, what problem are you just trying to solve and how can I help? Rather than coming in and saying, here's a piece of technology. If I have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? To do that in a thoughtful way. So how did you uh, move into the political space? Yeah. So after leaving my job in the summer of 2019, I did pretty early on get connected with Higher Ground Labs because there's a natural overlap in the kind of tech network. And, you know, Betsy and Jomink are great. Coming into the space, what I really wanted to understand was what are the kind of most meaningful problems that I could work on with the skills that I have. And I didn't have a specific agenda. I had volunteered and door knocked in 2018 into congressional districts in California. And I had seen some of the kind of ground level, you know, volunteer tech, both the, the cool, like good of it, and also some of the usability challenges. So I looked at the ecosystem in a holistic way, looking at the apps kind of and engagement layer, looking at the core campaign tools, and then thinking also about the infrastructure. What I realized is actually there was a lot of innovation happening at that top layer in the kind of apps and engagement, right? Seeded by people like Higher Ground Labs, by like New Media Ventures, done by people who had an organizing background, right? Which I didn't have. I think what I really realized is that the infrastructure layer was a place where I could help that I had seen this sort of pattern of an, of tools in healthcare and in in aerospace where you go from a handful of tools early on where data integration maybe isn't such an issue but as you grow and see this uh, emergent innovation you become an ecosystem and suddenly each of those really interesting tools doing something cool in their niche they become islands. So I sort of saw that there was this data integration gap. Um, and it was something that I heard about from a broad range of people. So my, my own approach to analyzing what problem you know, needs worked on was really, again, of course, about user research. And I talked to anyone who would talk to me, whether it was you know, folks in the DNC tech team or... Uh, the kind of one guy who's running his anti-gerrymandering uh, nonprofit in Virginia. That was kind of where I was going along the way. I did work with Higher Ground Labs on a really interesting project. So that project was called Volunteer Experience 2020. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was a, a thoughtful effort to try to, to, to bring both a design and usability focus, 
to the ecosystem and to apply it in the kind of highest leverage spot, which was on the volunteer side. So a lot of the tools that are um, developed and purchased are purchased not, of course, by the volunteers, but by the kind of professional side on the organizer side. And maybe they see more the admin side of these tools. So it was a focus on how can we make volunteers more effective? HGL had, I want to say, 10 plus companies participate. What the each company got was a professional designer, generally from outside the ecosystem, to come in and do a quick usability and kind of design assessment and identify some areas of opportunity that we could actually address before we got into the thickest part of the cycle. So in addition to uh, the designer's time for, let's say, you know, a couple of weeks, that company could then come back and sort of propose a project for HGL and uh, their collaborators to fund the actual engineering work to address the design and usability problems that were identified in that first phase. And did they make changes, substantial changes? Yeah, they, they did. I think that the pre-screening that HGL and company did identified people who were really motivated and engaged in these questions. And I think that coming with funding for the engineering work to kind of give those folks a boost was, I think, a huge win. I have also had the experience early in my career that sometimes designers give advice and that advice is not necessarily taken, but I don't think that that was, at least from my vantage point, that wasn't an issue. As you were doing this, what were you thinking about this progressive political tech space that you're now kind of steeping yourself in a little bit? What were your general observations about what you saw? I saw that there was a lot of interesting work going on, that um, it was still early days for design in this space. But given the financial constraints in the space, there was a little bit less than there you know, could be. But I would say that it's also a progression over time. So you came to my attention from a couple sources, including a recent interview with Matt Hodges, who was director of engineering at Biden for president, when we were talking about problems with data integration or, or challenges. And I asked him what's going on out there. And he mentioned a firm that called Blue Link, which you are now the CEO of. How did it come about that you started a firm? As I kind of mentioned, I had identified data integration as one of the key areas of potential improvement in the political tech space. It was mentioned to me broadly by folks who were very knowledgeable. So having kind of independently identified that, I got an intro to the, the one kind of group that was working on it in a kind of a productized way. So that was the shadow team. I didn't want to build a competing technology in a small ecosystem. That kind of wasn't my goal. So I, I learned about their tech stack. I got access to the code and sort of dug in. And you know what? It checked out. It was solid. So then when Iowa happened and the CEO and the board asked if I would take over, I said, yes, I wanted to contribute to the movement. 
And I focused the company on data integration and stripped away everything else, including the texting product, consulting, and just having this incredibly narrow focus on data integration. Now, you said when Iowa happened, and I don't think that everybody will know what you're referring to there, but I think what you're referring to there is that that Shadow took on a consulting project outside of their main core business to, to deal with counting votes at the Iowa caucuses, and it didn't work for various reasons as well as planned, right? Right. It sounds like a smart idea to find something with an existing tech stack and to focus it on a narrow problem. How did you manage to get control of an entity that's already out there or become the CEO of it? That sounds like a bit of a negotiation. We had just been able to establish trust and it, it didn't end up being dramatic, although I have typically built teams from scratch. So this was a little bit different. How many people were there when you came in? Um, about 10. Did you keep everybody? In the end, um, no. Uh, but we sort of kept the folks who were aligned with the technology, that, with the data integration side. What have you done so far since you came in? You renamed it Blue Link, right? Let's start with that. You know, it just communicates the progressive focus and uh, link integration. We launched a, a product which supported the data flow for 45 clients this cycle, including some, you know, pretty cool organizations. So voter registration and vote by mail were very interesting to folks this cycle. And the problems that we were really solving in that area were for the staffers. The staffers have historically been moving CSVs. They've downloaded them, they've transformed them, and they've uploaded them. Um, and I thought that Matt Hodges did a really nice job of describing the problem and the struggles for folks in the ecosystem. So in this example, uh, our consultant that we worked with they were doing this for multiple clients where they were pulling data out of the voter registration platform, transforming it, putting it into their email tool, MailChimp, transforming it yet again, putting it into Facebook to show the right ad based on what state the user was in or what status they were in, in the, on the voter registration side. They wanted to integrate Alloy, but they couldn't because it was API only. And then eventually to put the outcomes of all those contacts into Van. So that process took about six hours for each run. And they wanted to run it as frequently as they could, like every day, which would have been a full-time job. So what we were able to do is hook up all those systems in a fully automated way, saving that all that time and sending the right message based on what we knew about the user from the voter registration side. When you say sending the right message, I'm not clear. You're facilitating these data flows. I understand that. And I understand why that's important. But what do you mean about sending message? So for example, if we know that the user is registered but not registered to vote by mail, the outreach then isn't a generic, hey, get registered. It's a, hey, this is the next step to get registered to vote by mail. Or, hey, this is the next step to f make a plan to vote. 
so that it's specific to what's actually happening with that user. Are you talking about the client using the data to send out that message? Or are you saying you've added functionality to Blue Link that will allow them to you know, make a selection and then send a message? I'm not clear. So it is the voter registration weather, the tool, whether it's Vote America or Ballot Ready, they know things about what the user has and hasn't done. And that information is sort of like a flag or a tag on that person so that when they get added to the email tool or to a Facebook campaign, you can show them the relevant information. You can say, hey, if Irene is already registered, we can suppress her from the registration ad and add her to the vote by mail ad so that the ad dollars that we spend are spent as thoughtfully and accurately as possible. And so is that selection done on the app side and it comes out of your data? How is that connection being made? So that is data that we get from the source system and that we put in the format that the destination system can use. So we're not adding it, but we are ensuring that that key piece of information flows through the system in a way that gives the context. It's really about context to the downstream system. So do you maintain a repository then of the all of the data from your clients or is it sort of transitory and passes through? We do not. We absolutely feel like our goal is to do just the data flow piece. We would retain the data long enough to ensure that it successfully made it to the destination system, but not store it uh, or do anything else with it. I think that data is, is something that folks are very sensitive as they should be. And so one of the advantages of using a data flow platform like ours is that data, you know, downloaded CSVs aren't sitting insecure on people's laptops. They're actually flowing through a secure channel. So the data that we get is encrypted. The access to the data is based on API keys. It's all cleanly transmitted. That strikes me as something that would help you a lot in getting adoption by various vendors. Because if you were going to maintain a huge data repository, there would be big advantages to that. You could then build all kinds of apps around it. You could become a very valuable platform for your clients or beyond that, having all that data in one place. But then you would probably place yourself in competition with the very people that you want to be helping right now. Yeah. So we feel like our strategic vision is actually quite narrow. We are, I'm agnostic to what data your, your organization wants to flow from A to B to C. The goal is simply to enable the flow that the organization envisions. This is similar to like, let's say an act blue. They don't, you know, they facilitate the donation, but they don't do the, anything, you know, beyond that, right? And I sort of think about us, you know, we're like the act blue for data flow, very, you know, narrow and specific 
doing kind of one thing well and not trying to do a variety of, of other things that would put us in competition. Maybe you should have been Link Blue instead of Blue Link. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> For many years, every presidential cycle at least, I would go to meetings where people would complain about the data integration problem. Back when I was wearing a, a hat of one of the vendors in the space, which I don't wear anymore, groups would get together to try to remedy the problem. And those would always fall apart on the problem of the cooperation of the vendors. Vendors didn't want to put the resources into sending out their data, whether that was programmers or whether that was just the computing to slow down their apps and things like that. What is different now about the world in 2021 than it was in 2004, 8, 12, and, and onward? I think there is much more vendor interest and alignment in this. While it's, yes, it's a little bit less expensive for folks to build an API, I think I think part of it is our approach and part of it is people being ready for this. So from our perspective, our job is to make it easier for the vendor to send us the data. So we'll meet them where they are. If they have a real-time API, wonderful. But if all they have is a CSV, that's fine too. And we will just take the data in the least with the least amount of work for those folks and make it work on our side. And I think people do understand and appreciate that. The other piece of this is that on the client side, vendors are, are being asked in sales conversations, hey, do you connect to Action Kit and Action Network and Salesforce and this? And most vendors really only have an integration with Van. And so they have to say no to all of those other things. And what we've found is actually vendors are really like we see vendors as clients. And in fact, we have vendor partnerships like with Ballot Ready, where they absolutely want to focus on their core product. And they used our solution to flow data to anywhere that their clients wanted to send it. And the more uh, more and more teams have a range of software that they're using. So in order to tie into their infrastructure, there has to be a something like BlueLink to make that happen. If Van already has connections to so many vendors, as you referenced, are they a challenge to get them to adopt BlueLink? So, you know, I think initially Van, you know, might have been a little cautious what really this is about is people want to put data into van because it's the source of truth. And so by whatever means that, you know, happens, I think that happens. We also did work to build trust with those guys, you know, went through like a pretty detailed security review, you know, to be able to put data in and uh, take data back out. This cycle vendors built APIs for us. They were ready to, in part because some of the conversations, you know, went like this, like uh, our mutual client X wants to put data into your CRM 
about whether or not someone has completed a ballot guide and to what level they've completed a ballot guide. And it's really hard to sort of say, well, no, I don't want that data, right? Because that enables you know users to cut a much more thoughtful list. So I feel like at this stage, this is being driven by the adoption of many tools by smart orgs, by the fact that the vendors want to say yes to their clients, and by the reality that it's only going to get more expensive for vendors to build these integrations themselves, because as there are more tools, you have to build more connections, and then you have to maintain those more connections. And the pace of innovation doesn't appear to be slowing down. So it just becomes cost prohibitive. In fact, I would say there's a ton of pent up demand on the vendor side. Vendors are calling us saying, hey, you did this work for Ballot Ready. You made their clients' dreams come true. We want that too. And these are larger vendors. You know, not having experienced the end of the cycle myself, this is my first one. I thought that maybe it would be really quiet on the kind of demand side after the election was over, that people would be taking stock. But actually, I've gotten so many calls and it's like outbound requests for the desire to connect into the systems that we've already integrated and integrate more, especially primarily on the vendor side. What are the biggest challenges that you face right now in realizing this vision of a blue link that connects, you know, most, if not all of the different pieces of the data infrastructure on the left? I think the ecosystem wants a a certain level of alignment. They expect to see alignment behind uh, a single tool. I think that's an interesting model. Maybe taking your challenges and sort of framing it as what would really accelerate this is that I think what would be really interesting in addition to the vendors is to see groups that are essentially aggregators say, hey, we are recommending data flows to our campaigns and smaller orgs based on best practices. So you can imagine that uh, data integration, and Matt, Matt talked about this a lot, is that data integration is largely something that's available to, to, to presidentials, to large organizations. But if we want folks to be able to use data flows to make for more effective programs, we need to democratize that. What that looks like is organizations across the board like Emerge, like Arena, like the state parties to be able to say, hey, if you're a campaign working at this level, here's our template. And you can click three buttons in order to turn that on so that your volunteers flow into your CRM correctly so that your donors get the right outreach and thank you. That's what I see for adoption. What I want to see is kind of an aggregation of best practices that are not defined by me. Those best practices are something that is defined by the organizations themselves. 
and involved by the organizations themselves. And what we're providing is just kind of a shell for making that easy to turn on. If I were a vendor and had a database and it was connected by an external tool like yours to others, and by that route, new contacts were coming into my database, let's say, I would have concerns about how clean the data was that was arriving, whether it would be matched properly to augment contact records that already existed rather than create duplicates. There's a lot of challenges around that aspect of things. How do you handle that? Yeah, so we invest a lot of thought in really actually understanding what the incoming data is and what it means. What we do is we try to understand what is the incoming data, what does it mean? And then we map it carefully to each of the systems where it goes to. For example, people care a lot about opt-in status. And that that is can be based on what the configuration is within the source system. So we did a lot of work to really understand what are the various possible configurations and how do they map to the other systems. You know, to get that right, that took a lot of thought and and work. And so what we feel like this is significantly better than is folks uploading, you know, unknown data. The thing is, we're not not doing this now. Right now we're doing it. We're just doing it in a highly manual fashion in most cases, which has a lot more room for human error. The things that we're focused on, right, are the data integrity piece, the user experience, and even the developer experience, right? Those are kind of three core areas, both of prior investment and of ongoing investment. What's the corporate structure for BlueLink? Are you a regular company? Are you? Yeah, we're a regular company. We can't actually be a nonprofit because we want to work with both hard and soft side. And we think that it's really efficient to cover both areas. What's the business model? Who are you charging and for what? So we charge both the groups that come to us directly, whether they're campaigns or organizations, and we charge our vendor partners. It's not either or. We have groups that come to us where, for example, we flow data through for them through a vendor partnership and we flow data for them directly, let's say between their consumer tools, right? Like a MailChimp or a Facebook. The goal is for this to be sustainable for us and affordable for the movement. So folks who you know run more pipelines pay more in order to make this Uh, broadly available to everyone who wants to use it, not just to the very few who can, you know, afford a, an engineering team. This is a scale play. So I see us as taking a tiny percentage on the bits that flow through the system, the way that ActBlue takes a tiny percentage of the dollars that flow through the system. We're very sustainable with uh, a certain amount of scale. What does your team look like now? How many people and what sort of people? Our team consists of uh, back-end and front-end engineers, as well as product and client success. And we're actually pretty small right now. So we are 
a total of seven right now. Is the plan to bootstrap this or are you raising money? How are you going to make this all happen? We are raising money because doing infrastructure well, getting it right in terms of providing the kind of high quality and availability that is required to inspire the confidence requires a significant upfront investment, right? That's, that's true for infrastructure across the board. And we are raising money, which uh, I'm excited about. We do become sustainable in a few years. Um, so this isn't the sort of thing that I you know, want to indefinitely fundraise for, but yeah. What do you see as the competition? Are there other people who are solving this problem in different ways? I guess the status quo is very much, you know, maybe building one or two point-to-point integrations here or there, or continuing to upload data manually. Are things like the democratic data exchange or the data vendors themselves, how do you think you're getting viewed as you try to join this ecosystem? I'm really excited about the work that the DDX has done and is continuing to do. I don't think we're competitive in any way. In fact, I think that we are in a position to support the work that they do. So they pull data out of data warehouses, so out of like BigQuery and Redshift Um, And also out of van, but they don't work with any of the vendors. So from our perspective, we send data to those data warehouses on behalf of upstream applications, whether it's email or voter registration or some other thing. um, We're sending data to those data warehouses where they then pick it up. And I think over time, we can evolve our data formats to be even more DDX friendly as they create kind of an externally consumable data model, I wouldn't want to compete with those guys. I entirely want to support them. There's a couple other projects that came to mind that I want to ask you about. One is a group called Fracture, which Chris Lundberg runs. And Chris Lundberg, I know because he was in the He's been in the progressive political tech space for a long time. And also, I found out recently that the Biden campaign used that tool. Are you aware of that? And does that feel like competition for you? I've heard it mentioned like once or twice. But um, in all the conversations that I've had with our users and stakeholders, it actually hasn't come up, which is interesting. What we often hear about is about TMC's Parsons. Another set of tools to help with data integration. Yeah, so Parsons is an open source library. It's a tool to help engineers make pulling data from the set of sources that it connects to a little bit easier. And it does that. It does that, you know, quite well. So what is different between a developer tool and uh, a productized tool like ours is really who the demographic is, who can use it. And what we're trying to do is make our tools available to non-technical users in campaigns and organizations. I think what persons can be really great for is kind of prototyping some of these data connections so they can pull the data, they can explore it, they can transform it as they, you know, 
see fit. But then in order to actually run a reliable pipeline over time, they will need to do a couple of things. So they may use a platform that helps them do these things, but they'll need to schedule those pipelines. They'll need to monitor and alert if there are issues in the source system or the destination system. If the data is not flowing, if there are errors, they'll need to build a bunch of error checking around that. If the data isn't in the form it's supposed to be, if there's less data, if there's duplicate data. So that all is work that needs to happen in any case. Have you used any of the code, uh, if it's open source, in your own project from Parsons? Um, We haven't pulled in the Parsons code directly, but we look at the way that they make those API calls just to compare and understand um, more about those source systems. The way that I see this evolving in the future is actually really interesting. So we want to provide more support for engineers using our tools um, over the next year. So part of our roadmap is the ability to take code that is Python, that is written sort of in the Parsons style. And let's say our engineer, like I mentioned, has prototyped, they have something interesting. And they want to drop that code into the reliable pipeline to be able to do something new and cool. So that custom, I'll call it a custom transformation, is something that you would be able to drop into a Blue Link pipeline as one of the steps. It sounds like something that would really make your tool a lot more flexible and more interesting to the that subset of the possible clientele that are programmers or, or have access to them. One thing I noticed, Irene, about your career and about your staff is that there's another member of the team with the same last name. Yeah, I assume that's your husband, Preston? That's correct. We actually met as interns in New York City. We worked for a company called the Zagat Survey. He's been an entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley space and has multiple startups to his name, some of which you've worked with him on. What's his role with uh, Blue Link and how is what he brings to it helpful? Yeah, so our skill sets are very complementary. In the very beginning, we worked together at NASA on the same team. I would create the mock-ups and test them and make sure they were what we wanted to build, and then Preston would implement them. So we have worked together uh, very closely at different times in our career. That's not always the easiest thing. You two must get along pretty well. That's right. I think we know how to collaborate and support each other, but also to tell each other when we think that the other person is actually wrong. So uh, we've been very lucky to, to have such complementary skill sets. So what's his role with Blue Link exactly? Yeah, so he's our head of product. He typically takes the CTO hat with his deep technical background. But in this case, I think he has a broad and flexible skill set, and this is what we needed. And truly, even to map the, the ecosystem and understand what was the high leverage thing that we could build, I felt that this was a huge challenge, and I felt like we were going to be more successful 
together with both of our skill sets as we started out on this kind of journey. We've talked about a number of the entities in the progressive data and tech space that are relevant. Who else do you think ought to be part of that conversation? Who else is a key partner or competitor or adjacent in the space that you're entering? There are a lot of pieces to this data integration puzzle. And I see our pieces are really the data transfer piece and the data normalization piece. There's a shared element, which is about identifying and sharing best practices, which is we provide the kind of tech support for, but we don't define those best practices. And I think there are many pieces that are outside of the Blue Link kind of core skill set. So there are data warehouses, there's the um, their voter file, there's data cleaning, there's person matching. So there are a lot of pieces um, that need to happen. And so I see those as kind of cooperative pieces in a puzzle. As the worldview of the ecosystem has shifted from, I need to own all the data in my tool to there are a set of tools that we're using. I think that the case for data integration and the need for data integration is more and more visible, both in the way that uh, Matt outlined it really nicely for you in a recent podcast, but also, you know, this came up time and again in the 2020 tech debrief that was run by a combination of the DNC, HGL, TMC, DigiDems, and others. So I just think that we have a growing awareness that these things need to click together. Who is well served if you do help pull off this improvement in data integration? If we're successful, what this looks like is exactly the reality described by Matt, where the presidentials of 24, and we know who that is, right? We won't be spending... 50% of their engineering capacity on writing these pipes. They will be building on top of all of this existing work. They will have that kind of innovation capacity unleashed. But I don't think it's enough to support this for the big orgs. I think this has to work for someone who's running for state ledge. And that is kind of the the concept of templating where it's a state party, it's the movement cooperative, it's a number of well-regarded organizations saying, hey, for our members and groups, these are the flows that we recommend and they're really easy to set up. And that means that in the downstream systems, they can you know, exactly explain, given how the data is going to land, this is the report that you need to pull in order to be able to go do this good work. Whenever there's a new entrant into this space, I think there's a kind of predictable cycle of skepticism and sometimes, depending on how they enter, resistance, and then often followed by acceptance, but not always. And when I have talked to a small number of people about what you're up to, who just know you from afar, I've heard that skepticism. What would you say to people in the space about 
why we ought to trust you, why you're well positioned to do a good job at this and why this is really a necessary part of the infrastructure that you're the right people to tackle. Yeah, I think that luckily I don't have to sell the problem. I know that in this ecosystem, technologists have come before me who have had kind of a hard to work with attitude where they think they know better, they're highly skilled, and they have a technology and they say, this is a hammer and therefore everything looks like a nail. But I feel like one thing that the design world teaches you is that you are not the expert. You are, in fact, the apprentice and the user is the master. And so you need to really understand that problem and from there build something that is useful. Attitude is really important, including humility. And I think the other thing is, in my career, there's this thread of digital transformation, right? I don't expect all the APIs to be shiny. I don't expect to be able to say, this is how it's going to be, right? I never got to tell Blue Shield of California or the big aerospace contractors, this is how you're going to do it, right? I had to work around all of those entrenched interests and really over time build that kind of consensus and improvement. When you think more broadly about what having better data could enable for our side, what comes to mind? Yeah, what I have seen is that it's a layered sort of approach. So when you first give people data that they didn't have before, what they will ask is, for they'll ask a bunch of questions like, oh, how come I'm not getting more data? I thought I would get more data. And then they'll look at their tech stack and say, ah, it's because we're not collecting email address because we wanted our users to have an easier you know, entry point. So the first layer is what is my data and how does it look? And can I use it? Is it enough? And then the next layer is, okay, how do I augment the data to get what I need? And then what can I do with it? There's a second phase to really understand, okay, what is this data by me and how can I really act on it tactically in a useful way? And you have to go through a little bit to to unpack that. So one thing I wonder about, and I think this is beyond the specifics of Blue Link, but the question that I ask myself is where are we going in terms of being able to speak to our voters and supporters in a way that is specific to their interests? Like how do we make it so that we can offer Irene content about climate because that's what she cares about? And we have a lot of data that can route us there. You know, we're sending surveys to people. What is your top issue? But are we really sort of turning that around and turning it into something? And so if you compare that to the way this works in e-commerce, where if I click on a sweater, that sweater follows me around social media and a variety of websites, right? With ad tech, we don't necessarily want that experience. That doesn't feel great either. But Is there an appropriate middle ground that feels right for us where we can reach out and do thoughtful things? Like one of the best texts that I got this cycle based on my 2018 door knocking was a volunteer text saying, hey, we won 
my congressional district by a tiny margin because of your volunteer work. Can you come back and help us? And we need to send more texts like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there a question, Irene, that I didn't ask you that you would like to answer? We talked a lot about the mechanics of data integration and how it works. I would sort of think about sort of who the three demographics are that we can help through that work. So for me, there's the the staffer side, you know, downloading, uploading, and transforming um, CSVs, but there's also the impact to the user, to the voter supporter. We are leaving advocacy on the table, and I see this in my personal life. I hear stories when I talk about my work, and my friends and colleagues tell me stories like uh, one of my friends she volunteered for the Warren campaign. She donated her $50 like six times. And on the seventh time, she got an invite to volunteer. And they had an amazing tech team. They did a lot of good work. So how do we think about making sure that we are connecting our voter data and our volunteer efforts, our donor data and our volunteer efforts, in such a way that we're supporting those outreaches so that we're not trying to voter ID our supporters so that that we can connect those loops so that people feel seen. And then I think we did talk about this a little bit about what it's like for the vendors. A lot of the questions that you asked were sort of framed around, are they willing and are they ready? But I think if we look at the vendors sort of perspective, they really want to focus on their core product and they really don't have the extra capacity for data integration. And so for them, I think we're unlocking innovation potential if we're able to solve the data integration problem and be able to turn on a connection between their software and any other system that is interesting in this space. This big vision It's been a challenge since the beginning of computers and politics, which goes back to the 60s. You know, it goes back to the beginning of computers when uh, Winthrop Rockefeller ran for governor of Arkansas. I'm really interested to hear where you're trying to find your spot in this. And I hope that you're able to make easier a lot of things that I know are genuinely a problem right now. So honor to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? I don't think so. That was Irene Tollinger. Irene is at bluelink.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.